Have you ever wondered how the ultra-wealthy keep more of their money? In this episode, Dutch Mendenhall has an extensive conversation with certified public accountant Charlie Dombeck, tax mitigation expert and founder of the Optimal Financial Group. Charlie shares his secret for generating wealth and maximizing your money. The value of tax planning and the value of compounding dollars that you ordinarily pay in income taxes is never more important. Look, the marginal rate of taxation at the highest level is supposed to go back to nearly 40%. For those that live in jurisdictions with high taxes, oftentimes on every incremental dollar you earn, you're losing almost 50% of your purchasing power. If I can recover some dollars on that side for you and then put those dollars in passive investment real estate or in alternatives, then ultimately I'm going to increase the rate at which you grow your wealth. Right here, right now, on the Rad Podcast, Explore Wealth. What's up, everybody? We're here with Charlie Dombeck, right, with Optimal, which is a CPA firm. But what's more important than that is Charlie's a thought leader. He's an expert when it comes to tax, when it comes to wealth, when it comes to helping people of high net worth, which I find is interesting because you come from a traditional, you know, tax background. But you bridge that into, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of experience of high, helping high net worth people. And so I think what I love about that is, is I think when I grew up as a kid, I didn't know what credit was. I didn't know what wealth was. I didn't know what money was. Right. And so for me, it's a fascinating conversation because it's like, what is that? You know, what should kids be learning? What should we be teaching our kids? What should they be having? It's an interesting conversation. But do you have kids? I do. I have three children. All. uh well past the age of 25 and out of the house and out of dad's checkbook. So growing up in a wealth environment, right, of, of constant of, of finances and money, like what, what was your stories with your kids? What, what was your conversation? It's interesting. Um, my kids have taken very different paths in life. My middle daughter, who was always the life of the party, and in fact, the first day she went to college, um, she was actually handcuffed because she was drinking underage and and it was Thursday night, and she called me up and said, Dad, I got in trouble today. And this is my first day at Radford University. I go, it's Thursday night, Taylor. What are you doing out drinking on Thursday nights? Well, it's called Thirsty Thursdays. Well, it was happy hour Friday for us when I was a kid. We never had Thirsty Thursdays. But ultimately, um, she went the traditional path and got a Ph.D. in behavioral science, ended up being a finalist to be an FBI agent, and does uh, some wonderful work in the social side in Oregon, working for an agency there. My um, oldest daughter, who is 35 now, went uh, to Brooklyn College. She told me she was going to go to college in New York the minute she graduated from high school. I'm going, it's not a state school. But anyways, um, she became an entrepreneur, and she owns her own production set design company now and does very well. And the, the most successful individual financially out of my children is the youngest of the three, which is my son. And when he graduated from high school, he goes, well, I watched your, my two sisters go to college and not be able to get jobs sufficient enough to pay their student loans. I don't want to go to college. I want to be an entrepreneur and learned a lot of different things. He grew up working in a family business. So he learned the value of money, the value of hard work, and he learned how to read financial statements. And ultimately took over a garage door sales service and installation company as sort of the third generation individual in that business and ran it very successfully for many years. And then um, he said, Dad, how can I make more money? I said, well, you're a wonderful salesperson. You've sold more than any other person in the company that we inherited. People that have been in the company 20, 30 years, you outsell the entire team. I said, find something that costs a lot more to sell. And so he went into financial services and began selling 
um, private placements and became a very high level commission salesperson. Went around the world with a big name um, global business coach and sold high level coaching packages at age 21, had a six figure income at age 21. And today he lives in Port Charlotte and is a real estate investor. So he transitioned a successful career as a young adult, being an entrepreneur, trying different things, growing up in a family business. As I said, learning the value of money and hard work, and now simply does high-level real estate investing, predominantly in Southwest Florida, and has done exceptionally well over the last three years. Real estate is such a fascinating topic to me because I find there's so many variants of when people get on the real estate journey, right? I find that there's the variant of people who are in a job and they want to get into real estate or they want to put money into real estate so it can make them money so they can be free to go out and do other things. But I also find people who've made a lot of money, right, are trying to figure out like, well, how do I, you know, not continue to have to grind or not continue to have to work hard and they put money into real estate, right? I think it's kind of rare that people get into real estate because it's their passion, dream, and love to be in real estate. I think they use real estate as that vehicle or that tool um, with that. So that's kind of what your son's doing now that he's on his, what, third third cycle of, of, of entrepreneurship, yeah. right? And it's interesting, you know, I've been a practicing CPA for nearly 30 years and I've counted people's wealth my entire life. And, and my story is eight years ago, I watched both of my parents pass away from what I call early elder care issues. And I spent a career of work grinding it out, helping people recover dollars. They unnecessarily pay in the form of state and federal income taxes, but after having done tens of thousands of tax returns and watching my parents pass away, I felt like I was kind of on the same path that they were, working very hard, trading hours for dollars, and not really accelerating the way I grew my wealth. And what I had observed as a CPA is that there's really two factors that determine how fast and how much wealth you ultimately accumulate. And those two factors are how much you pay in taxes and how well your investments perform. And what I had observed as a CPA is that most people invest their hard-earned capital in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and ETFs. And having worked with very successful people, the more successful my clients were, the higher their net worth, the more capital they deployed outside of the financial markets. And the secret to improving investment performance, I found, was to diversify your capital responsibly out of the financial markets into other asset classes like passive investment, real estate, and alternative investments. And there's so many different things that you can do in real estate that provide a rate of return. One, that gives you an embedded tax strategy that in many instances helps keep capital off the 1040 and ultimately outperforms market-based investments. And that translates back into what my son decided to do sort of in his late 20s. And it's something that I recommend for all of my clients. And what I think is the is the recipe for growing your wealth rapidly is find ways to shelter income from taxation and find ways to improve investment performance by getting your money out of the financial markets. So there's a couple of things there, right? So when you say shelter your income from taxation, right? A lot of people, you know, red flags go up, right? They start thinking like, well, like, like, is he going to get us in trouble? Is he going to get himself in trouble by saying those kind of things? And, you know, and there's different opinions about that kind of stuff too. Like my father-in-law, when I moved to Florida, Right. He had asked me, you know, well, why'd you move to Florida? And one of the reasons is absolutely was was there's no state income taxes. Right. And he got a little fired up and he's like, well, I think people should pay their taxes. Right. And and so I, I kind of, you know, I took the conversation in, in, in a healthy way. 
but the people have different different opinions about that you know talk talk about that that sheltering term talk about yeah there's there's two types of accountants out there and the industry is littered with the the former of the two most accountants are trained to be historians we count your money we tell you how much money you made how much you owe when and where to file your taxes and oftentimes how to write some pretty large checks when you least expect it so the problem is most people end up overpaying their taxes simply because they have no one that gives them proactive strategic advice that allows you to control the cost of taxation so i am the type of accountant that is a cost recovery center i'm not a cost of doing business i help my clients save money and i call myself a cautiously aggressive accountant i know the internal revenue code upwards and downwards and i use the code to my advantage I call it playing tax chess, simply moving the pieces on a board that favor you rather than the government. And what I know is that the value of tax planning and the value of compounding dollars that you would ordinarily pay in income taxes is never more important. Look, the marginal rate of taxation at the highest level is supposed to go back to nearly 40%. For those that live in jurisdictions with high taxes, oftentimes, on every incremental dollar you earn, you're losing almost 50% of your purchasing power. If I can recover some dollars on that side for you and then put those dollars in passive investment real estate or in alternatives, then ultimately I'm gonna increase the rate at which you grow your wealth. And that's simply what I do. I do what other CPAs don't. My tax season is actually between October and December 31st. It's not like most CPAs between January 30th and April 15th, where you're actually completing the forms. All of my time is devoted to helping my clients proactively plan and recover dollars. They simply should not be paying in the form of state and federal income taxes. And really it's just about having that conversation. It's about going through the prior year business and personal income taxes and engineering strategies that work for you rather than the government. And there are certain industries where there have been codified strategies that provide tax advantages. Real estate is certainly one of them. And it's the sole reason why Donald Trump would never ever disclose his tax returns to the general public. So I can guarantee you that man does not pay federal income taxes or state income taxes because he's a real estate investor. He gets depreciation deductions. He gets accelerated depreciation deductions. He's able to use those real estate deductions to offset his active income because he's a full-time real estate professional. So. He just has the right team, the right strategists, and is using the code to the letter of the law that allows him to have the advantages that are embedded for that industry. Well, the code was written by, by wealthy individuals, it right? Was. And, and, and I think wealthy individuals is a fascinating conversation because, you know, when you're born into generational wealth, there's things that you learn that others don't learn. Right. My kids talk to me. I get my kids find find ten dollars on the ground and they're going to give it to me and say, Daddy, invest and buy another house. Right. And so they're going to have a different kind of conversation than than more, the way I grew up, which was, you know, I found ten dollars and I might, you know, go to the 7-Eleven and play some video games and buy some candy and I might buy a meal with it. Right. right. Or my parents might end up taking it. But w one of those diff different things, the way I grew up. So, you know, for, for you, you know, when you describe a wealthy individual and you've been uniquely positioned, right? Athletes, um, people that are in the movies, you know, there's, you know, very select few people, business, business entrepreneurs, right? And for me, I look at wealth as, as an interesting conversation because it's just this dynamic of understanding. Because it's not like it's a, a mystery, 
and and it's an unlockable unlockable tool for people so talk about that yeah let me give you a couple of statistics one is the ultra wealthy have a team of people around them whose sole goal is to grow their wealth at north of 20 percent and to grow their wealth in a way that does not expose them to taxation. And, and, and let me interrupt. Just this, so, if you've never done this, right, and you're really wanting to understand wealth, if you take a simple spreadsheet, and if you're so old school, you want to do it in a journal. But but in the modern world, people don't use journals, right? So you take an Excel spreadsheet, and you take a hundred thousand dollars, and you take thirty thousand dollars out of that for taxes, and you accelerate it at a five to ten percent appreciation, right? Mm-hmm. And now you're accelerating seventy thousand dollars at five to ten percent. Or you take a hundred thousand dollars, which is the original amount, and you accelerate it at a twenty percent appreciation. You're talking about the difference in in ten to twenty years between millions and hundreds of thousands of dollars. That gap is is incredible when it comes to just knowing those two things you said, which is one, utilizing the tax code correctly; two, accelerating the percent return on your investments. But that's a going. very powerful observation. In fact, if you look at the presentations that I give to people around the country, I talk about the value of tax planning and actually what financial difference it makes in your life. And if you take, say, $500,000 of capital and you're paying tax at a 35% rate and you can earn an 18% annualized rate of return, and most people can't, but I've seen your audited financial statements and I know that everything that you do here generates a rate of return north of that. So assume we can earn, worst case, 18% per annum. If I can keep that income off the 1040, and in real estate, I can. By year five, that half a million dollars has grown by another half a million dollars just by the savings I achieve by keeping that income non-taxable today. By year 15, it's $3.5 million. By simply annuitizing my tax savings, creating a lifetime income from the tax savings and compounding those dollars that would normally be paid to the taxing authorities. That's what the ultra wealthy do and they have a team around them. What I find is the biggest shortcoming is people that are in what I call the mass affluent category. These are people that are worth say two to $20 million. They can't afford to have five or six professionals they employ full time that engineer the tax strategies, that find the alternative investments, find the great real estate investment opportunities, they're left to work with a certified financial planner, someone from Morgan Stanley or for, someone from Merrill Lynch, and at best, you grow your wealth at 6 to 8% and you pay tax on every dollar you earn. What we do is we bring that family level, family office level surface down to the mass affluent, where we can become that one-stop shop for our clients, where we can engineer the tra- tax strategies, where we can find the investment opportunities like the things that you have and really help our clients grow their wealth rapidly. Because what I find is the common theme amongst the mass affluent is they're either very successful professionals, they possibly own their business, they work long, hard hours, and 20 years into their career or their business ownership, they're saying, wow, I'm stuck in the middle of the rat race. I'm making great money. I'm paying a lot in taxes. I'm not growing my wealth very rapidly. And there's no likelihood with the traditional financial advisor that I'm ever going to get out of the rat race before normal retirement age, which is typically 65. What we are able to do with the type of planning that we do is by creating the tax savings, by finding the investment opportunities that outperform the market, we're able to push that retirement clock back 
years, if not decades, to what I call a time that's defined by pretirement, a stage in life where you have more choice, choice to spend time with friends, family, children, travel, leisure, whatever you may want to do, but you're also still able to spend some time continuing to work in the profession or the business you own, but not having to devote your entire life to that activity. That is the message and the value add service that we try to provide in our clients' lives. And that makes the big difference. That's the game changer. I think when people are just spend their time trusting stock market, right? And, and that's, a, that's the traditional first step for most people when it comes to, they think of, you know, retirement. I think of how they're putting their money in and they want to trust, you know, an advisor at one of the big companies because they're at a big company, right? And, you know, there's, there's some challenges there. There's one, if they're just in the market, they're just a ticking time bomb waiting, waiting, waiting to go off. And, and, you know, we saw it in 2008, we saw it in 2020, we saw it in, in the 90s, right? We've seen it, you know, every 12 to 18 years, we, we see that, 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 that kind of time bomb with the stock market go off. And sometimes it's bigger, sometimes it's smaller in, in different ways. And so they're just, just waiting. And so, you know, I always talk about diversification. One thing I have to do is because you talked about my, our returns, right? I always have to say past performance doesn't indicate future performance, everybody. But, but, you know, as we talk about, the returns, the diversification. So the balance between, you know, there's real estate, but then there's, you know, alternative funds. And then there's, you know, uh, alt cap investments when it comes to like investing in companies, right? And then there's, there is the stock market and then there, but within the stock market, there's volatility trading and there's high risk trading and then there's low risk trading and those kind of things. So talk about kind of your plan or how you diversify people. Yeah. Um, very good point. People think that when they have their money in the financial markets in say a blended portfolio where 60% of your capital is in equities and say 40% is in fixed income, which is the sort of the go-to standard allocation for many people. And maybe you're diversified across several asset classes. My point is the financial market is one bucket of wealth and it is not diversification by having all of your capital in the financial markets because mm -hmm. what happens is yeah, maybe you have this economic cycle where we have a massive run up in the financial markets like we did up until about a year and a half ago. And we experience periods where we have mid to upper teen rates of return. But then we get into a cycle and I call this the rolling crash. And a year and a half ago, I told people on nationally syndicated radio, it's time to take money off the table to lock in the profits that we've experienced in an extraordinary bull run. The markets are historically overvalued. So the problem is if you don't make the decision to diversify your capital into other asset classes, then you risk significant loss in your portfolio. And some people have been down as much as 30% or more. And we've recovered a little bit, but the diversification play is some money in financials and responsibly allocating capital to other asset classes to include multiple strategies in real estate and multiple alternative investments. That is the secret to growing your wealth rapidly. And when you do that, you get much better performance. And of course, along the way, as I said, you get the tax planning that comes with these alternative and real estate-based investments. And what I tell people that are in this mass affluent category, the last thing we wanna do is during periods where you have high active income from the job, the profession, or the business you own, the last thing we want to do is bunch on top of that income you earn, investment income, gains from the sale of assets. We don't want to pay tax 
on those investment gains and earnings during those periods where you're still working and paying high levels of tax. Because again, you cut down your purchasing power. So the secret is, as I said, strictly save money on taxes and improve investment performance by diversifying into those other asset classes besides financials. That is the roadmap. And what you will find is no financial advisor, no other CPA, most other financial service firms will never have a value proposition that advises clients to manage their capital this way. One is most financial advisors can't get compensated for moving capital out of financial products into real estate or alternative investment, even though it make a lot of sense. Most financial advisors are governed by a suitability. So standard. a lot of people don't know the difference between different types of advisors, um, you know, between independents and, and, you know, different registered, like there's different. So talk, just educate people on that a little so bit. Most everyone in America has some financial advisor that works with them that manages their capital in market-based investments. And there are financial advisors that work with the major brokerage houses. I mean, like the Morgan Stanley's, the Merrill Lynch's, the Schwab's. And what you find is most of those advisors are not actively managing your portfolio. They're simply selling the brand of financial services products that they represent. And in that industry, there are back-end sales incentives and strategies. But on, but on top of that, you've heard the term, right? If, if, if if you're really good at what you do, you do it. But if you're not really good at what you do, you teach it, right? If right. you've ever heard that before. I have. And and so like when people, when you look at big financial firms, they go, most financial advisors get out of school, right? And they're trying to build resume. They're trying to build internship. They're trying to build time on time, time in the business, right? And if they're good, they're not as likely to be working for one of those, the, the major financial advisement firms, right? Right. Because they become independent, they become entrepreneurial, they build their own financial, you know, there, there's, there's different types. And, and so, you know, talk about, you know, yeah. that kind of that so dynamic a little bit. I believe the best, otherwise, you would have kept working for, you know, one of the big four accounting firms. Yeah, for like I said, young, I got yeah. out of there after about a decade. The best financial advisors are the independent IRA, RIAs who are also designated as a fiduciary. They have a legal obligation to do what's in their client's absolute best interest. They're governed by a whole set of professional standards that are much more stringent than a regular registered investment advisor. The thing about independent financial advisors as well is they can cherry pick from the very best investments. Now do the same thing for CPAs. Tell people a little bit the difference between so, different different types of you know tax tax advisors. There's everything you know from from the what do you call it the speedy tax online you know service right. that people can robo tax. So there's right? there's the H and R blocks and the TurboTax guys and the advisors that circle around these software platforms where they're basically teaching you how to fill out the forms and how to be compliant and you're getting no advice and guidance and no doubt you're getting your returns filed accurately but you're getting no advice and guidance and I'm certain that most Americans are overpaying on their taxes. Then there's the local and regional CPA firms. And again, the industry is wired for most CPAs to do the very basics, which is actually just completing the paperwork, being compliant. Um, and most CPAs just stereotypically are very risk averse. They don't want to take a chance on advising a client inappropriately. And frankly, they don't have the time because they get so busy during a compressed period of time, filling out forms, preparing taxes to be able to advise their clients. So the shortfall is 
Most clients never get advice and guidance because their CPA firms are too busy. They get overwhelmed. They have compressed time schedules and stereotypically they're not wired to communicate well and develop strategies. I chose to be very different. I am a tax planner at heart. Um, I found and, that and was the where, difference. There's, there's one of the terms, right? To pay attention to tax planner, right? At heart, right? Planning for your taxes is very different than doing your taxes. Yeah, planning is very different. Planning really looks at three critical areas in a client's financial life. How do we find ways to recover dollars you're unnecessarily paying? One, it starts by looking at the entity structures that you're using in your personal and business life. Whether you're using corporations, partnerships, limited liability companies, each entity type has unique legal and tax attributes. What we do is simply fit the unique tax attributes of each entity type favorably with what is happening with our, within our clients' financial lives from a business, personal, and investment perspective. Those unique tax attributes, when used correctly, ultimately drive down the cost of, of, of taxation and create savings. The second thing we look at is, I want to volunteer to pay tax on the income that I need to live off of, right? I don't want to pay tax on income that is not cash flowing my lifestyle needs. I want to move those dollars into an environment where I have more control. So from a tax planning perspective, how we take income out of our business and our investments determines how those dollars are taxed on our 1040. So compensation planning and, and income distribution planning is a critical component to developing an overall tax mitigation strategy. And then lastly, there's a whole plethora of what I call fringe benefit expenses that most people pay for with an after-tax dollar. Well, there are certain entity types that allow you to layer in what I call executive level fringe benefits and garner a tax deduction for something that you would ordinarily have to pay with an after-tax dollar. What I find with many, many people, especially those in what I call the mass affluent categories, people do a good job of creating wealth from dollars they've already paid taxes on. We'll do a pretty good job of saving in IRAs, 401ks, which are tax deferred buckets of wealth. But most people don't do a good job of creating tax-free wealth, which is the ever valuable Roth IRA. And Peter Thiel from PayPal is the landmark individual that grew a multi-billion dollar Roth IRA by simply investing in his startup company with his Roth IRA. And when it went IPO, uh, it became a multi-million dollar Roth IRA. And then he reinvested it in other startups. There's no reason why every American in this country cannot grow a tax-free bucket of wealth. The problem is it takes someone like myself who knows how to engineer strategies that can accelerate the way that Roth IRA grows. And there are strategies on high-performing investments that are codified that allow you to double the size of your Roth IRA when positioned correctly. So the tax planning gamut really spans entity structuring, compensation planning, how to develop tax-free wealth so that later on in life when you draw income out, you're not paying tax at high marginal rates of taxation because you can pull money out of a tax-free bucket. That's the sort of the, the landscape of how we actually look at things and the critical areas that go into putting together an overall tax mitigation strategy for someone. I mean, I also think there's though a group who wouldn't quantify themselves as highly affluent, right? But they're also not, you know, struggling to survive. Right. Right. And the, the, it's, it's a category of we've had a ton of investors come from 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 this in category with us. And and so it's a group that is, you know, we're at 10, 20, 30 
40 years, right? And they have 400,000 to 800,000 of capital to invest, right? And they're kind of like an unspoken to group and they're kind of a new group in the terms of American society because it's like you have the affluent and you have the poor, right? But that middle ground, right, class that, that is maybe owns their own personal home, right? Maybe even their own personal home free and clear, right? And that's not something I, you know, always rec- recommend to people. I know that goes to get some some mm-hmm. professional advice. But so the, the you know, I don't give financial advice to everybody, right? And I don't give tax advice. He's here to give tax advice, right? Um, we have many people that give financial advice. But for me, you know, that, that, that dynamic of that group is kind of an unspoken to group. And, you know, lots of times they have, like, these are the people I get a call from all the time where they owned one or two investment properties. Mm-hmm. And I get the call and they're like, I sold my investment property. Now what do I do? Right. Yeah. Which is already a little late in the game. Mm-hmm. Right. They should be planning before they sell their investment property or before they sell, you know, their, their grandmother's house that they inherited. Right. The, the planning should already be happening. But talk about that group a little bit and just some stuff they should just be. Exactly. That's, to. that's the group of people that is largely left behind in the financial industry. And the goal with that group is to get them into that high net worth category and to give them the foundation today and give them the same opportunities that more affluent individuals have to be able to get access to the tax strategies, to get access to the tax efficient investment strategies. And that really, before it's later on in life, they can reposition capital out of market-based investments into things like the passive investment real estate and the alternatives. The key is to have access to the type of advice and guidance that's going to leapfrog them or create that X factor in their financial life that will propel them to a different journey and a different path and ultimately a different end. And the key is really having access to the same suite of services. And that's really how we've engineered the services that I provided in financial services to be that one-stop shop where instead of having to have this entire team around you and pay thousands of dollars in advisory fees to really cut at the chase and cut down to the couple key issues that make the big difference in your financial life. And when you find well, that- Well, because yours are black and white, right? So like black when, and white. when people are talking about what they're going to invest their money in, right? That's always gray. No matter what any human being in the world says, it's, it's great, right? What's the percent return gonna be? How much money are you going to make, right? But when it comes to taxation, to me, you can control that impact more. And so when I look at like our financials and wealth and different things, right? Controlling the impact of, of of you know, I'd say the damage sometimes done by by taxes, right, um, is 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 important because it's black and white. You can control that control that part of it. So, what are some of more of the the, the black and white stuff for for individuals that hit that category? Well, the black and white stuff is you have someone that has a couple of investment properties. You've got someone that maybe has a couple of alternatives. Is really number one having the correct business structure to hold those assets and finding ways to keep that income from those investments off your 1040. And the structures that we use do a great job, along with tax-efficient investments that are embedded in those structures, of keeping that income off the 1040. So the planning and the strategies are almost identical to what the ultra-wealthy use. It's just exposing those strategies to a different audience and making them available on a cost-efficient basis. And that's the, that's the key right there, right? Making it available to the ultra-influent, right? The, the everyday person, right? Yeah. I've gone from, you know, broken, poor, not knowing what credit was and, you know, what, what money was or what a money relationship was to 
going through the hardcore journey of, of you know, the boot camp of, of maturing as a person into my 20s and figuring those out. And then once I figured those out, trying to mature into fixing those things and, and getting them right to now being, you know, a small business owner to a medium business owner, right, to being highly, highly affluent through that through that journey. And so there's there's a a, a journey that that people have got got to get into and they got they got to learn. And if they don't. Yeah, and I, I think maybe you hit a point that's really important is oftentimes that group of individuals that you speak about don't get the education, they don't get the support, they don't get access to the tools. Every person's situation is unique and different. And ultimately, having an individualized plan for what's happening in their financial life is very important. And even today, like what am I doing today with, with people that um, you refer to is I'm looking at things that I can do between now and the end of the year that's going to save them money. And I know a lot of accountants, they're already gearing up for getting things prepared and getting tax returns out and forms filled. I'm wondering, well, gosh, I had clients that had a lot of pass-through losses this year. And I'm saying, oh, gosh, you got an old 401k that you can roll into an IRA and I can convert some of that into a Roth. And maybe not to pay very much in tax. Maybe I have to pay tax at a 15% rate. So I'm looking at all the year-end strategies that we can implement across the board for our clients today between now and 1231, where the things we do today make a difference for all of the calendar year 2022. So I think it's access to information, access to education, and then ultimately at the appropriate time, having the team to implement what is appropriate in each individual's financial life between relative to their unique situation and what their financial goals and objectives are. And that, that level of support and service can certainly be delivered to a broad-based audience, no matter how much net worth they have. There's, there's a danger zone for people in that area that I see sometimes. And I, you've probably seen this over the years. Is, is I see them sometimes where it's like, like money in their pocket that's not like stored somewhere, that's not put into a place, is sometimes like dynamite. Right? It's like the fuse is lit and they want it to go to a place. Talk to people a little bit about how they're making choices, right? How are they choosing what to invest in, what not to invest in, right? Like, like how are they figuring out like that part, part of the journey? Like, what do you do when you look at an investment and say, you know, am I, am I going to go further with this? Am I going to stop here? You know, t- talk a little bit about that. So I've worked in private equity uh, last two and a half years. I raised $50 million, bought $700 million worth of real estate with the private equity firm that I work with that I have since retired from. But Having been a CPA that is numbers-based, I look at the underlying economics of every investment strategy. What overall rate of return is that investment going to provide? What is the worst case? What is the best case? What is the most likely case? And when I choose a particular investment, my worst case is I get my capital back. I don't lose. So always in my mind, have a, 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 in the back of my mind, I have a strategy about capital preservation. I don't want to lose. Worst case, I get all of my money back. So I look at the underlying economics behind each investment. Um, I put a lot of capital with clients, with sponsors that um, are in private equity. That's where the, the gold nuggets are. So I look at the management team. I mean, what sort of track record does the management team have in terms of past performance? Although you say past performance is not necessarily a predictor of future performance, past performance, in my mind, a track record really does a lot in terms of building credibility, building stability, and ultimately getting people comfortable with the overall investment. So I look at that. Um, I look at 
what sort of tax strategies are embedded in the particular investment that can keep that income in a tax efficient environment where not necessarily all that income drops onto the 1040 and ultimately gets taxed today. So those are the key things that I find that are important in terms of investment selection. For me, as I'm looking at, you know, Bridges Men and Babylon's, right? I, I quote that book all, all the time, right? And then, you know, you've talked a lot of different things that are in that book, right? Where it's keeping money in your buckets or diversifying your buckets, or it's, you know, investing with people with the proven, you know, history and track record of investing. When I'm, when I'm looking at investments, right? I, I want to ask, you know, what is in their worst scenario? Like you said, the zero sum, right? What in the worst scenario, right? What is, what is the situation that's going to happen? And, but I want to know with the people I'm investing with, the managers, with the owners, right? In their worst scenarios, what's been their track record in history? Exactly. Right? And I got a tough time investing with people who haven't been through a crash, who haven't been through a, a market cycle. I was recently at a, at a mastermind of, of real estate investors. And there was, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, gentlemen in their, you know, young thirties that were investing and, you know, they're really scared shitless about, you know, what's coming in, 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 in the real estate markets because they haven't done their history lessons. They don't know about the foreclosure wave that's coming and how, how to win right with that foreclosure wave and those kind of things. And so, you know, I look at those things and I, I make some of those determinations, but what is their purpose as a company? Is it only to make money? Is it only bottom line, right? Is there somewhere in there, you know, you got to be careful if the only destination that a company is, is pure money. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to have a why in everything that you do. And I've always believed personally in giving back and helping people that, that maybe are underprivileged or don't have access to the type of tools and techniques and investment opportunities that we have. Um, I've always found a way to be charitable and giving. I think oftentimes it feels better to give than it does to receive. And I like working with organizations that have a mission beyond just creating a rate of return. Right. One is it creates a culture that people can bind to and enjoy. And in terms of a culture in a company, I judge a company's culture by the tenure of its team. How long has the team been with you? How often do you have turnover? And I know in my own personal self, I've, I've been fortunate in my CPA firm and my other financial services companies to be able to hire people, pay them more than they're making anywhere else and create an environment that gives people flexibility of choice and not, not having to feel like they're just grinding it out for a dollar. And that's allowed me to keep people that have started with me and finished with me. And I think I look for organizations that have a similar type culture where there's something beyond just a financial incentive or a goal. You know, online research is something people rely on these days. And I, there's a couple of things that I pay attention to with, with online research, right? When I research a company and a few years ago, there was a, a, a conference. Um, it was a, it was a faith-based conference, right? And they were, had this gentleman come on and he was, you know, speaking about tools and, and, and wealth and those kind of things. Right. And they had promoted him as, as, you know, had handled a billion dollars worth of capital and those kind of things. And I'm like, you know, it kind of attracted me to going because I was curious, you know, what someone like that is going to speak about and mm -hmm. talk about and stuff. And as I'm doing my research in different things, right, and he's from Australia and different things, and I did my research, right, I went to other search engines and, you know, I'm researching it. And I'm like, the guy has, you know, uh, had his licenses banned, right, for financial advising. And there's a bunch of other things. But because people had only done, you know, a U.S. search, they hadn't found, you know, some of his background and stuff. And so, you know, I give people a little bit of advice under that, right? If a company has nothing about them that exists anywhere that you can find, right, there, there's a problem. 
right? Yeah. If a company has, you know, you can literally Google most companies' names and figure out, you know, if, if they have lawsuits, if they don't have lawsuits, right? Very true. If a company has thousands of lawsuits, there, that's a problem. There, there's a problem, <laughs> that's a right? Warning sign. If a company has, has, you know, like spam caller suit that they settled, or they have, you know, a rental dispute that they settled, or, or different, you know, small things over, over the different years, right? Or an employee thing that they settled, right? And there's, there's, a, there's a few for a company that's been in business a long time, and that's probably means they're in business and they're active and real, right? It, it does. I mean, we live in a, a frivolous lawsuit society where people will bring lawsuits for no good purpose. And if you are a successful company, you have employees, you do outbound marketing, invariably you are going to run into people that want to sue you for whatever purpose. And finding those lawsuits um, from a public records perspective is easy. But those aren't the types of lawsuits that would concern me as mm -hmm. a potential investor. The things that would really lawsuits from investors—that's that's the one I was just going to point. Yeah. yeah, lawsuits from investors are troublesome, right? You want to have a good track record with your investors, and I always think it's important to talk to people who have invested with that company that have had good success that can really speak to how well they've been treated, how well have they managed their capital, and how well overall have the investments performed. There's never more truth than social history and social it creates a ver footprint. verification. It does. So like when I was I was at this real estate mastermind, one of the one of the groups there, you know, they had received $150 million in institutional money um, to go invest into residential residential housing, right? And I'm listening to these guys talk and I'm like, they have no idea what they're doing with it with this money, right? So just because a company has a scale of money and it's kind of like the financial advisors we were talking about earlier, right? Who just go to work for a big company doesn't necessarily mean they're geniuses or they're great at, at what they do, right? For me, what I love about, you know, our tribe is, you know, when you're talking five, six, 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 people that are a, a part of a tribe, right? That's a credibility you can't match like with your CPA firm, right? It's not like you've helped 10 or 20 or hundreds or thousands, you know, it's like the scale of it makes a difference. And then you combine that with time, yeah. time in business, history in business makes, makes a huge impact. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, and I would have hated listening to this when I yeah. was in my twenties, I know getting my first private investors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but I wasn't qualified to get them in my twenties. I got them but I wasn't qualified to get them at, at that age yet. Right. And, and, you know, people trusted me, believed in me, right. Because I, I, I had gifts and skill, but now in my forties is a difference between that person and my ability, even believing I would invest in that person and the person no, I, I would be I today. Feel exactly the same way. I mean, the professional growth that I've personally experienced over a career work is career of work is immeasurable. Um, the wisdom that I've gained by seeing every form of success, every form of failure, every type of partnership or marital dispute um, is invaluable in terms of lessons learned. And I think I'm able to really evaluate good opportunities and punch holes in things and find ways to help keep clients from making bad investment decisions and putting capital in places that has no possibility of earning a rate of return. And Certainly in my 20s, I would not have been able to provide that advice and guidance. But over a career of work as a CPA, you learn those things. And it becomes invaluable to your clients. Like we have a lot of missions and purposes as, as a company. But I think getting good quality information into people's hands keeps them from those ticking time bombs, right? 
And I was talking about, you know, the people who are just, you know, have that money burning a hole in their pocket and they're looking for that right place or a place to, to invest it. But that knowledge is, is, is so important. The challenge is when you're in a hyperinflation world, right? The, the fuse is burning whether they invest, invest it or not. That's the that big point. challenge today is people have cash on the side. And, you know, when I told people, you know, a year and a half ago, look, um, we're at the top of a market cycle. It's time to take some of that capital off the table and we need to and find that was smart. It was smart and it preserved millions of dollars of capital for my clients. And I um, told mine about, you go back and look at our YouTube videos about eight, nine months ago. What are we in? So we're in into the year. So probably 10 months ago, right? I told all my crypto people, you know, our investors who also invested in crypto, I said, I said, get your cash out to get your money out of crypto. I said, I said, I see things that are coming regulatory wise. And the thing is, people don't know their history. If they go and look at like when an industry suddenly starts being regulated heavier, or there's even words of regulation, right? There's a lot of the problems suddenly boiled to the surface. And then as they boil to the surface, you start to see the erosion of, of, of an industry before it cleans up and gets better. And, and improves. And, and I, I just said, you guys have got to, to move your money money out of crypto. But now that the market has shifted and things are flattening out, they're going to start getting either the before or, or the right after, right? Bottom, bottom level prices of most mm -hmm. investments they're going to make. So now's the time your money's got to go in. But people miss that window they so do. often and they screw themselves. They do. And um, you talk about the YouTube videos. And if you look at the presentation that we have up here on the screen, I have a clip from the Hugh Hewitt show in November of 21, where we talked about getting your capital out of the financial markets. And I was asked, what do you think about? We'll throw a link to that in the, in the description box. That way yeah, people can you just can click hear on it. the Hugh Hewitt video. And um, I basically said, look, pull your capital out of the markets now and look for ways to diversify your capital into investments that are going to perform well in a rising interest rate environment and an inflationary environment. And certain types of real estate do very well. Rental real estate performs well in an inflationary environment. Look what happened in rents over the last 12 to 18 months, skyrocketing in major metropolitan areas, especially in affordable housing. But I, I was asked a question about cryptocurrency. And what I've observed is that oftentimes, the cryptocurrency markets follow what happens in the broader stock markets or the broader equity markets. And I felt as well, it's a good time to get out of, not just because of the regulatory stuff, but what was happening overall structurally in our economy. And it was the right call across the board. I also think even today, we face some very unique challenges in the environment we're in today. If you look at history, and history has a way of repeating itself every time the Federal Reserve for the last 13 out of the last 16 times the Federal Reserve has increased interest rates we've ended up in a recession we're not necessarily in higher unemployment higher unemployment now which comes with the recession I every guess. recession is a little bit different this one is different we still have very strong uh, employment and we have not started really to see the uh, I believe the full effects of the interest rate increases oftentimes it takes six to twelve months for those interest rate increases to be fully factored into the economy. And I think we've got still a tremendous amount of recessionary pressure and still a lot of instability in the financial markets at, at large and potentially another correction phase that we're gonna see in the financial markets. So I tell people when we have these short lived, what I call bear recoveries, if you didn't get out before, now's a good time to think about preserving capital and redeploying that into other asset classes because we're by no means out of the woods yet. 
and we're not in a point where I believe it's time to reinvest capital back in the financial market. So we're in a unique environment. So what do they today. do then, though? That's the question because, because you know, they people start pulling money out, they start sitting in bank accounts. You know, there, there's there's risk with that too. Yeah, so, so I mean, there's certain strategies that I like a lot um, in this environment. Um, I've got a lot of people that let's say they're older in life and they're on a fixed income and they're looking at income-based investments and the the fixed income markets have been clobbered. Rising interest means rates means your bonds depress in value. Um, interest rates have been historically low for a long period of time. So people were earning, say, in an annuity previously five or 6%. And now that coupon rate's been down to two or three, hasn't re recovered. Municipal bonds got, got called back. And so people didn't have a place to park fixed income. So I like collateralized debt lending. So asset-backed lending in micro-lending niches where there's not a traditional capital source where you can earn up to a double-digit fixed income rate of return makes a lot of sense in this environment. And when interest rates rise, you see the coupon rates on your debt instruments rise as well. So that's a good strategy for people that are on fixed income. We're going to have to break that one down because you just spoke a foreign language to a great many people people in the world and, and it's a bit complex, you know, like if I go back to it, it's fascinating because like in my, my simplest terms, right. If I invest in a place where people sleep and I invest in what people eat. Yeah. Right. You know, those, those, you know, for us, you know, farms and houses. Right. And, you know, there's other ways of looking at things, you know, as you look at it, right. We've probably taken, you know, had more hard money loans, right. More, more, you know, which is what you're talking mm -hmm. about, right. Yeah. More micro lending and other things than we've ever had. Right. In the his history of our business business right now. And so, you know, for me, it's interesting because I always look at like, what's that worst case scenario, right? What I've, I've found is, is I want to go to places where I see, you know, the money increasing. And so in, in recession, right, rents increase, right? And, and especially in high interest rates, rent, yeah. rents increase, right? And, you know, people have less money, though, available, available to them. And so, you know, well, what is less money available to? Well, entrepreneurs have less money available to them. Right, which means businesses are going to slow down. Right, expansion of businesses are going to slow down. But there's also more money in the world than there ever has been. And if the wealthy aggregate more of that wealth than the rest of the nation, right, and that's a lot of you know, it, it's fascinating because there's very few affluent, significant businesses that win, right, and in in a major recession. Yeah. Right? So this is a good case in point. So there are certain asset classes that historically perform very well in a rising interest rate and inflationary environment. And you just need to do the Google research and there's a couple that are at the top of the list. Commodities is often the number one asset class. The thing I don't like about commodities is you're speculating and commodities don't cash flow. Number two asset class. I'll, I'll, I'll counter, counteract you there a little bit though, right? Okay. So, so for me, it depends on how you invest in commodities, right? So for us, when we invest in our farmland, and, you know, we, we grow wheat or we grow hay or we grow cattle or we, you know, some of the different corn and different things we do, mm -hmm. right? Now, for us, that's a commodity that cash flows, but we're the exactly. ones selling, selling the commodity, right? There you go. So we're not, we're not just grabbing to a commodity right. in the stock market and saying, does it go up or down? Because to me, that's not much different than currency trading, right? Because you're, you're, you're trading, you know, a fixed asset and it, that fixed asset's value is going up you know, based, based on how the market goes. Yeah, you're buying an undervalued asset, creating cash flow, creating additional equity, and creating a multiplier on your investment. That's a home run strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, passive, affordable housing, rental real estate, probably the number two asset class mm -hmm. as a hedge against inflation, because you're exactly right. What happens 
when interest rates rise, the cost of owning a home gets more expensive and people get priced out of the market and the demand for rentership increases. And so your rents rise. And, and we've seen what they call shelter inflation. It's been one of the statistics that's counted in the consumer price index and it's gone up significantly. And there are certain demographic ge- regions that are gonna perform exceptionally well because there's just a lack of demand for that type of housing. In particular, these Sunbelt jurisdictions have been really, really good for rental real estate because of the demand, the shifting demographic population, and the fact that we have rising interest rates. And that's a great place to park capital right now. I get a little intense about this in the the, the way we are right now. Not like an intense, like like a moral intense, but like intense, like because now's our time to take market share. I never thought they could create an environment where housing and real estate could do better, you know, from a, a growth and value standpoint mm-hmm. than what it was during hyperinflation, right? I never thought they could do better, right? Than where it was as it was rising, you know, from sixteen, you know, to nineteen, and then nineteen, we knew that that the housing prices were going to start to flatten out, especially in twenty twenty, and we weren't planning on a pandemic, but at the same time, we knew they were going to flatten out. But what they're creating right now is it kind of feel like like a little bit of a storm in the sense that like there's a housing shortage in America, like the supply shortage, so nationwide for people where people live, right? For everyday people, there's a we estimate anywhere from a three million on the low end to a six million on the extreme high end just tried out shortage of places for people to live absolutely in, in, in the United States. And, and then you look at the foreclosures that, that are coming. Well, what foreclosures do, what a lot of people don't understand is that actually takes housing out of supply. And, and because there's a, there's a, a year window, a six month window from the time properties are bought to the time they're either rehabbed or the time they're putting back on the market. But also there's this dead time between the time that they get their defaults to the time they're actually foreclosed on. And, and what they're creating with high interest rates is, 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 you know, kind of a foreclosure wave. And so for us, it's all about market share right now. How much, how many more assets can we put under our belt? Because what's going to happen is eventually they have to rate the lower interest rates again, right? Eventually politicians will get tired of a bad economy or a bad recession and people complaining or somebody will want to win an election and they'll, they'll, they'll push the Fed, right? Um, and the Fed says they're independent, but they're, you know, obviously appointed by mm-hmm. uh, a singular person, right? And, and whoever's president at the time. And so, you know, they have to be, you know, accepted after that, but really it's appointed by a singular party. And so for me, you know, when they lower interest rates again, we're going to come out with the greatest supply shortage I think we've had in the last probably 30 years um, in the U.S. and then and then you're going to have low interest rates and everybody yeah, is going to refinance. Exactly, you have the massive refinances and then your valuations will significantly pick up mm-hmm. once those interest rates start to dip. And there is just a massive shortage of what we classify as affordable rental housing in America. I think the statistic nationwide is about thirty percent, but in many jurisdictions like here in Southwest Florida, it's as much as 50% or more. And that trend is not going to not going to change. And really the play is you can't go out and find affordable land to develop and build an affordable housing complex. You have to find an existing you gotta, you asset. Own the land already. Own the land already or find an existing, an existing asset. asset that needs a value add, that needs a renovation that you can then bring up to market rents. And that's really where the play is, I think. And that's going to be a great economic space to park capital. All right. My people hear from me all the time, right? So I can sit here and talk to them about what we're doing from a few, but so fundamentally, right. There's, there's things that if they're going to be winning in real estate, right. 
the stuff they have to know from a taxation standpoint, right? 1031 exchanges, they have to know. I think Delaware trusts is something they have to know. Tell me, t- you can throw, throw some out there too. Um, depreciation is something they absolutely have to know. Opportunity zones is something they, they absolutely have to know. What, what else do they absolutely well, have to know? I think you covered know? the big ones. I mean, the biggest benefit that people get from real estate ownership and most many fund structures are set up in a way where you're considered a fractional owner of every asset where you get a flow through depreciation deduction. So with depreciation, you're able to create an environment where you can get high cash flow, typically nine to 12% per annum on a strong performing asset where all of that cash flow is not taxed currently because of the depreciation that passes through. If you think about if you're paying tax at a 30 to 40% rate of return rate, rate of taxation, your overall rate of return increases because you're not having to pay tax on that income today. The 1031 exchange, a great strategy that allows you to defer recognition of gain into the next property. That's always something that we look at. What we experienced in the last year or so is that many people saw this trend coming with rising interest rates and they sold their real estate assets where we're highly appreciated. And the problem they had was we don't have another asset to exchange into. We don't have another good acquisition candidate that meets our requirements from an underwriting perspective to invest in, will not generate the rate of return that we need. So people had capital that they couldn't deploy. And then the opportunity zone became an excellent choice where if you invest in an opportunity zone, you can defer your capital gain on that investment till December 31st, 2026. And on the underlying new investment you make in the opportunity zone, if you hold it for a period of 10 years, all of the gains from that investment are completely eliminated. I love opportunity zone investments. They are one of the home run strategies right now for many people that are sitting on uh, previously taxed gains that are going to drop on the 1040 because they don't have uh, good exchange opportunities. And, you know, over the last year and a half, I had so many people calling me, what do you have that I can put into a 1031? Does your fund accept 1031 money? I got a client uh, in Texas today, Steve Power, had a $1.2 million capital event. Where can I find an opportunity zone that makes sense? Well, I've got one for you. So opportunity zones are great investment choices right now and really one of the best places to park capital when you don't have uh, a replacement property that you can exchange into from a 1031. Yeah, I I think it's really important for people to understand that like we're a vehicle when it comes to, you know, people's financial investing, right? But but we're one vehicle and a diversification of what people have to do in their life. And if they don't get the knowledge in order to do that diversification, right? They're playing they're playing with fire. Appreciate you being on, on here today. Uh, we'll put some links for Charlie in the chat box, right? So that you guys can, you know, win win with Charlie, right? And you know, get as much knowledge as you can, but, but thanks guys. And, and we'll chat with all of you soon. Thank you for listening to the rad podcast, explore wealth. If you would like more information, visit our website, www.raddiversified.com. That's www.raddiversified.com. If you enjoyed what you're listening to, leave us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more content, visit our YouTube channel, the rad podcast, explore wealth.